On August 1st, 1966, Charles Joseph Whitman dressed like a janitor and placed food, water, knives, rope, toilet paper, and deodorant, among other things, into a footlocker. He then took that footlocker, loaded it into his car, along with a dolly and numerous firearms. Whitman drove down to the University of Texas, where he was a student, and began to climb the tower. Once reaching the observation deck, he went on a shooting spree that would eventually kill 18 people and wound 31 others. Police and civilians would eventually kill Whitman, and though he never had to stand trial, we know he was guilty. Welcome to Guilty, where we find the why behind the who, what, when, and where. My name is Colin, and I'm going to be your host. We'll go ahead and start today with some housekeeping, and there are a few announcements this time. First, you may have noticed that some episodes were removed, then re-recorded, and then they were posted out of order, and on and on. I've gone ahead and listed them in the correct order, but this may have marked them as new when they aren't. So to clear it up, I'm going to do two things. First, the episodes will be marked as quote-unquote old. I'll add that to the title, so you know they aren't new material. Second, you get this announcement, telling you that the only new episode is the one you're listening to, and the part two episodes with David on McNada and McDaniel, if you haven't already heard those. Some have also asked why we redid the episodes. Our main concern was the audio quality. David sounded like he was recording in a bathroom using a coffee can as a microphone. So we've gotten some of that fixed up and we can fine-tune it from here on out. The other thing we're doing is trying to make episodes 2 a little more conversational so it doesn't get too boring. We want to find the right balance between interesting, informative, and entertaining. So the second parts might change over time as we figure out the best format, but we shouldn't have to re-record anything. Hopefully. Second, when I started this podcast I promised that we would never have ads. I really want to remain faithful to that promise. So I've gone ahead and launched a Patreon page for this show. You can find it at patreon.com slash guilty podcast. This is for those of you who want to help support David and I in our journey to discover the whys behind the who's, what's, when's, and where's. And I don't actually think any of those are words. But you know what I mean. Before we even mentioned this on the show, we had some awesome people start donating. So I want to give a huge shout out to the following people. Sandra, who's our top donor right now. Ariel, Stephanie, Tisha, and Julie. We also have some support from amazing podcasts, including True Crime Fan Club, The Minds of Madness, and Moms and Murder. Thank you all so much for your contributions to the show. David and I are both really floored by how generous you've been and how passionate you are about this show. If you'd like to join these amazing people, stop by our Patreon page and donate. Every little bit helps. You can find the link in the show notes. Also, if you want to get in touch with me, you can find me on Twitter at guilty underscore podcast, on Facebook at guilty podcast, and by email guiltypodcast at yahoo.com. 
If you're like me, the true crime void is never going to be full, so you can never have enough true crime podcasts. So stay tuned at the end of this episode to hear a few promos from our friends. Now, let's talk about Charles Joseph Whitman. Whitman was born June 24, 1941, in Lake Worth, Florida, as the oldest of three sons. His mother was Margaret E. Whitman, and his father was Charles Adolphus Whitman, Jr., Mrs. Whitman was a homemaker, and Mr. Whitman was a, quote, self-made man, and he was employed as a contractor. They were a fairly well-to-do family. Whitman's father was extremely strict. Some would call him an authoritarian. He beat his wife physically, he beat his kids physically, and he abused everyone emotionally. He's quoted as saying, yeah, I knocked my wife around, but I loved her. No, you didn't, you moron. You loved yourself, and you used your family as a punching bag because you're a fucked up clown. I hate when people say stupid shit like that. So I'm sorry, but I'm not going to buy that bullshit here. He didn't love anyone in his family. He just used them. Despite being a terrible father, early in Whitman's life, he actually did pretty well. By age 12, he was already an Eagle Scout. And at the time, that was the youngest Eagle Scout in American history. The only time that Whitman bonded with his father was when they were hunting and shooting. His father had over 60 guns, and he taught all the boys how to shoot very well. Whitman was actually an excellent shot by the age of 12. It was said that he could shoot the eye out of a squirrel at 50 yards. I don't know how you could actually test that. I guess, aside from shooting the eye out of a squirrel at 50 yards. So maybe they did try it. Anyway, that's a pretty impressive shot. On his 18th birthday, Whitman would go out with his friends, he would party, and he got drunk. When he came home... His father was very angry. So what does a normal father do when he wants to teach his kids a lesson? Not what Whitman's father did. Whitman's father beat Whitman, and then he threw him in a swimming pool and almost drowned him. This was the last straw for Charles Whitman. He decided to do the one thing that his father couldn't stop him from doing, and that was joining the Marine Corps. His mom, naturally, fully supported the decision. Whitman would go to boot camp at Paris Island, South Carolina. The type of discipline in the Marines is exactly what Whitman liked and needed, so he thrived under those conditions. He left there July 6, 1959 for an 18-month tour at Guantanamo Bay. While he was in the Marines, he earned three different medals. His first was the Marine Corps Good Conduct Medal. In order to receive this medal, you must complete three years of honorable and faithful service, in order to do that, you can't have any judicial punishment, disciplinary infractions, or court-martial offenses. So basically, you got to be a good boy. We're going to see a big 180 here later on. During his shooting tests, he got the sharpshooter's badge. This is the middle badge between expert, which is the highest, and marksman, which is the lowest. It's better than some, but it's not the best. He scored 215 out of 250 points on his marksman test. Where did he excel? He excelled at hitting moving targets at a distance. This would obviously be quite deadly later in his life. His third medal was the Marine Corps Expeditionary Medal. This one is awarded when a Marine lands on foreign territory, participates in combat operations against an enemy, or participated in an operation where no other medal is applicable. This was awarded when he went to Guantanamo Bay. You gotta remember, the Cuban Missile Crisis, Guantanamo Bay. This was a very interesting and scary theater for Americans in the 60s. 
By all accounts, Whitman was an amazing Marine. He was helpful, he was supportive, and he was well-regarded. When they tested his IQ, it came back at 138. That's extremely high. So after completing his tour of duty in Guantanamo Bay, he wanted to become a commissioned officer, so he applied for a scholarship. The Marines awarded him that scholarship in 1961. That's when Whitman would study mechanical engineering at the University of Texas. Whitman would start school on September 15, 1961. It wouldn't start very well for him. His grades weren't amazing. He was known as a practical joker. He did a lot of drinking, and he did a lot of gambling. While he was gambling, he ran up some debt with some pretty sketchy characters. This led to him fearing for his safety, so he started sleeping with a gun. In a way, you can start to see that Whitman is already unraveling, and nothing serious has even happened yet. It was remarked that he said to some of his fellow classmates that a man with a deer rifle could kill people and hold off an army for as long as he wanted on top of the tower. Nobody took this seriously, unfortunately. After all, he was known as the Joker. In college, he would meet somebody who could change his life, Kathy Lesnar, in February 1962. They were married only six months later on August 17, 1962, in Needville, Texas. They got married on the 22nd anniversary of Whitman's parents. That's odd to me considering how much he hated his father and how abusive his father was towards his mother. And in another way, it's almost a sign of things to come. However, at the time, Lesnar's parents described Whitman as handsome, intelligent, and aspirational. When you think about it, they really were the perfect couple, at least in America. Whitman was a handsome Eagle Scout turned Marine, and Lesnar was a beautiful, smart girl from small-town USA. This should have been a match made in heaven, but nothing is further from the truth. If there's anyone that should have been able to turn Whitman around, it was Lesnar. Kathy was outgoing, she was fun, she was beautiful, and everybody wanted to be friends with her. She was studying to become a teacher, and she was very dedicated to it. She was extremely compassionate, and this came through in her eventual career when she did become a teacher. She was basically that all-American girl, very close to her family, again, from small-town USA, but if she couldn't help him, I don't know that anyone could. After their marriage, Whitman would continue to drink and gamble, and his grades never improved, even with the positive, influential wife that he had. Eventually, his scholarship was removed, and he was ordered back to active duty, and he had to fly to Lejeune, North Carolina. The good news is he was promoted to Lance Corporal. Not a huge promotion, but at least it was something. At the same time, he resented the loss of his college scholarship, and he started gambling and fighting in the Marines. So that good boy Marine that we knew earlier, he's gone. Whitman is starting to show his violent side. Eventually, he was court-martialed for gambling, usury, possession of an illegal firearm on base, and threatening another Marine over $30. Now, I don't know if you know what these things are. Usury is the act of loaning money where the lender unfairly profits. Think about loan sharks and those payday loans that you're never going to pay off. Well, not you, but other people that take those payday loans. They're never going to pay them off. That is usury. And a court-martial is generally convened to try members of the military. In the United States, soldiers have their own criminal code outlined in the Uniform Code of Military Justice. So he violated rules in there, and he has to stand trial with a military judge. It's a little bit different than regular laws. 
He was found guilty of his charges. He was sentenced to 30 days in confinement and 90 days hard labor. He was also demoted from Lance Corporal back down to private. His fall from grace was going to continue, and it's going to get dark. In confinement, Whitman states in his diary, quote, I thought very much about the concept of death. When it overtakes me someday, I must remember to observe it closely to see if it is as I thought it would be. At this time, he starts looking out to blame others for everything. He starts to see where his life has gone wrong, but instead of seeing who should be blamed, which would be himself, he's looking outside. His main anger is aimed at the Marines. So at this time, he asks for a discharge. He enlists his father's help in asking for that discharge, and it's eventually granted in December of 1964. Believe it or not, he was honorably discharged. That seems crazy to me, considering that he was court-martialed. In any case, he went back to Austin and reapplied to the University of Texas, and he was accepted, but this time he's going to study architectural engineering. When he went back to Austin, he thought he was going to change his life. He was going to flip everything around, and he was going to get better. But this is actually where he really starts breaking down. At this point, his father is supporting him, his wife is working two jobs to support him, and he hates that. He feels like he should be supporting his wife, and he feels like he should have nothing to do with the father that he hates. So he starts acting like his father, ironically. He starts abusing his wife. It was loud enough that his neighbors could hear it. Unsurprisingly, across the country in March 1966, his family starts to fall apart too. His father and his mother argued so loudly that the neighbors called the police. The neighbors explained... We know someone over there is going to die if some police don't come over here. So the police show up, and they stop the fight. And eventually his mom calls Whitman and says, Come and pick me up. I got to get out of here. Whitman brings his mother to Austin. This is good and bad. So while he has family nearby, he's still under that same stress that he was under before. So he starts getting more and more stressed out. Now he has his mom that he has to look out for and try to support. He doesn't have any good jobs. He's not doing well in school. He hates his father, and his father's contributing to his education. His wife is working two jobs, and he can't be the husband he's supposed to be. In his own mind, things are starting to really fall apart. And how does he handle this? Of course, he starts taking dextroamphetamines. This is a stimulant that we now use for ADD and narcolepsy. Maybe David can tell us about it. But what ends up happening is he stays up for days at a time. Reality starts to slip as he loses sleep. His wife gets worried and tells him to visit a psychiatrist. Believe it or not, he actually does see a psychiatrist. He sees Maurice Heatley on March 29, 1966, and he's very honest about his issues. He tells the psychiatrist everything. He talks about how stressed he is with his wife's situation and not being able to support her. He talks about how he hates his father and he could never live up to his expectations. He talks about how his father was abusive and how he's going down that same road. But even more than that, he talks about a fantasy. And his fantasy is to go up into that tower at the University of Texas with his deer rifle and shoot people. The psychiatrist dismisses this as just a fantasy. And he sets a second appointment and tells Whitman to come back to talk a little bit more about it. Whitman never goes back. We know what actually happens. Summer starts to get underway now. We're heading into the hot months in Texas. Very hot, very humid, 
And guess who doesn't have air conditioning? Anyone who's spent time in a hot, humid place without air conditioning can attest to the fact that it's not pleasant. That alone could drive some people nuts. Something that Whitman says here, which is interesting, is he says, quote, To burden others with your problems is not right. However, to carry them is akin to carrying a fused bomb. I wonder if the fuse can be doused. Well, I guess he answers his own question, at least in his case, that it can't. But I also wonder if he didn't see murdering and shooting innocent people as burdening others with his problems. He obviously knew at this point what he was doing is not right. He says it right there. So between the time that he sees his therapist and the days of the shooting, not much happens. On July 31st, 1966, at 11 a.m., Whitman heads down to a place called Academy Surplus in downtown Austin, and he buys binoculars and a hunting knife. Around noon, he meets his wife and mother for lunch at a restaurant where his mother is a cashier. Around 4 p.m. that night, Whitman and his wife visit John and Fran Morgan. They leave close to 6, though Kathy, his wife, can get to work for her 6 to 10 p.m. shift. 6.45 p.m. that night, Whitman starts to type his suicide letter. I'm going to read part of that suicide letter, at least the part that's legible, just to give you an idea of what was going on in Whitman's head. Sunday, July 31st, 1966, 6.45 p.m. I don't quite understand what it is that compels me to type this letter. Perhaps it is to leave some vague reason for the actions I have recently performed. I don't really understand myself these days. I'm supposed to be an average, reasonable, and intelligent young man. However, lately, I can't recall when it started, I have been a victim of many unusual and irrational thoughts. These thoughts constantly recur, and it requires tremendous mental effort to concentrate on useful and progressive tasks. In March, when my parents made a physical break, I noticed a great deal of stress. I consulted a doctor, Cockrum, at the University Health Center and asked him to recommend someone that I could consult with about some psychiatric disorders I felt I had. I talked with a doctor once for about two hours and tried to convey to him my fears that I felt come overwhelming violent impulses. After one session, I never saw the doctor again, and since then, I have been fighting my mental turmoil alone and seemingly to no avail. After my death, I wish that an autopsy would be performed on me to see if there's any visible physical disorder. I have had some tremendous headaches in the past and have had consumed two large bottles of Excedrin in the past three months. It was after much thought that I decided to kill my wife, Kathy, tonight after I pick her up from work at the telephone company. I love her dearly, and she has been as fine a wife to me as any man could ever hope to have. I cannot rationally pinpoint any specific reason for doing this. I don't know whether it is selfishness or if I don't want her to have to face the embarrassment my actions would surely cause her. At this time, though, the prominent reason in my mind is that I truly do not consider this world worth living in and am prepared to die, and I do not want to leave her to suffer alone in it. I intend to kill her as painlessly as possible. Similar reasons provoked me to take my mother's life also. I don't think the poor woman has ever enjoyed life as she is entitled to. She was a simple young woman who married a very possessive and dominating man. After that, he changes from a typewriter to handwriting, and I can't quite make out the words. But you get the gist. He's not happy, 
and he's taking other people down with him, and he's trying to justify it. At 10 p.m. that night, Whitman picks up Kathy from work and takes her home. He then makes a phone call to his mother and asks if he can study in her air-conditioned home. She says sure. His wife gets ready and goes to sleep. He leaves the house and heads over to his mother's. On August 1st, 1966, around midnight, Whitman's mother answers the door and lets him in. When she turns around, he instantly hits her in the back of the head with some blunt object numerous times. He cracks her skull open. He then flips her over and stabs her in the chest with the knife that he bought the previous morning. He drags her body into her bedroom, puts her on the bed, and covers her with her sheets and blanket as if she's still asleep. He heads to the bathroom to wash up, and then he writes another letter. I'll go ahead and read you a little bit from that letter as well. Monday, 8-1-66, a.m. To whom it may concern. I have just taken my mother's life. I am very upset over having done it. However, I feel that if there is a heaven, she is definitely there now. And if there is no life after, I have relieved her of her suffering here on earth. The intense hatred I feel for my father is beyond description. My mother gave that man the 25 best years of her life, and because she finally took enough of his beatings, humiliation, and degradation, and tribulations, that I am sure no one but she and he will ever know, to leave him. He has chosen to treat her like a slut that you would bed down with, accept her favors, and then throw a pittance in return. I am truly sorry that this is the only way I could see to relieve her sufferings, but I think it is best. Let there be no doubt in your mind that I love that woman with all my heart. If there exists a God, let him understand my actions and judge me accordingly. Charles J. Whitman After writing the letter, he makes a little note that says, Please do not disturb. He leaves his mother's house and tapes the note on the door. I'm not sure if Whitman thought that his mom lived in a hotel and that random neighbors wouldn't notice that strange, but I've personally never seen anyone on their home door put, please do not disturb. From now on, I think if I see, please do not disturb on someone's door, I'm going to disturb them to make sure they're alive. Around 2.15 a.m., Whitman gets home. He tiptoes inside, goes up to his wife, and he stabs her in the chest three to five times. Hopefully, she went from sleep to death almost instantly, but there's no real way of knowing. So she was the second victim. He does the same thing he did with his mom. He covers her with the sheets. I'm not sure what his point is here. Does this show that he actually has some kind of sympathy, that he's trying to put them down peacefully? Or is he just stupid? It's really hard to know. On his suicide letter, he adds, quote, Monday, 3 a.m., both dead. Whitman won't be getting any sleep tonight. Instead, he heads out to his garage. And this is where he gets his guns ready. Currently, he has a Remington 700 6mm bolt-action rifle, a 35 caliber pump rifle, a 30 caliber carbine M1, a 9mm Luger pistol, a Gillespie Brescia 25 caliber pistol, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that one right, a Smith & Wesson M19 357 Magnum revolver, and 700 rounds of ammunition. This is enough to do plenty of damage, but that's not enough for him. Later in the morning, Whitman cashed a $250 worth of bad checks, and he purchased another rifle, a Universal M1 carbine, two extra magazines, and eight boxes of ammunition, and a dolly from a hardware store. 
He then purchased four more carbine magazines, six more boxes of ammunition, and cleaning supplies from a gun store. He then purchased a Sears Model 60 12-gauge shotgun at his local Sears, and he sawed off the barrel. This is overkill. Another bad pun. We're going to knock that off. It's going to get bad. Whitman goes home and he packs a green footlocker with supplies to keep him on the tower. He wants to make sure that he can stay up there for days. For him, this wasn't about lasting 96 minutes. This was about lasting days. He packs toilet paper, deodorant, gasoline, water, rope, and food. Whitman then puts on a janitor uniform over the clothes that he wears, and he loads the car. At 11.30 a.m., Whitman uses a fake research assistant ID to get a parking permit. He then takes his dolly out of the trunk, he takes the footlocker, and he heads over to the tower. He takes the elevator to the 27th floor, the highest that it goes. But he wants to go to the observation deck outside. So he uses the dolly to load up his footlocker and drag it up the three remaining flights of stairs. When he does this, all you can hear is bang. 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 As it goes up the stairs. Almost foreshadowing what's going to happen in a very short period of time. Once he's at the top, he's greeted by Edna Elizabeth Townsley, the receptionist. He tells her that he's there to make repairs, but she's not sure about it. She needs to call to make sure that he's authorized. When she turns around to pick up the phone, he hits her a few times in the back of the head. She's bleeding profusely at this point, and he drags her body and hides it behind a couch. After putting her body behind the couch, Whitman dragged a desk over to block the door. He wanted to barricade himself up there. At the same time, the Gabor family was visiting the tower that day, and the two kids, Mike and Mark, also known as Martin, were trying to get through when Whitman shot. He hit Mike in the shoulder, and he hit Martin in the head, instantly killing him. Whitman then peeked through the door, and he shot down the stairs, hitting Marguerite Lamport, their aunt, and Mary Frances Gabor, their mother. He then walked over and shot Edna Townsley in the head before heading out. Around 11.45 a.m., Whitman gets outside of the observation deck. He uses the dolly to block the door, and he puts on a white bandana to block sweat out of his eyes. As you can see here, he's meticulous in what he does. None of this was poorly thought out. He knew exactly what he was going to do. The first thing he does is distributes guns all around the tower. He wants to give himself multiple angles and multiple places to shoot from. His goal is to surround the entire area. At 11.48 a.m., the first shot rings out from the 230-foot tower and hits Claire Wilson, a student, in the stomach. Claire was eight months pregnant at the time. There's some speculation that Whitman intentionally killed the unborn child, but not the mother. Her boyfriend, Thomas Frederick Ekman, who was also a student, immediately went to her aid, but he was shot in the chest and killed instantly. The mayhem is starting. Robert Hamilton Boyer, a math professor, attempted to run at this time, but he was shot in the lower back and killed. I'm going to go ahead and make a note now before we get into the rest of the poor victims here. These victims were not necessarily shot in this order, and this wasn't happening one after the other immediately. Whitman was in the tower for well over an hour, 96 minutes. So he had time between these shots, and there's no way of knowing the exact time each of these shots hit. If you want to learn more about the victims, then I can cover in this episode. 
there's a great website called BehindTheTower.org. You can find out a lot about the victims there. Devereaux Huffman, a PhD student, was then shot in the arm. He faked his death and laid on the ground. Luckily, he survived. David Madsen, Roland Ethke, and Tom Herman were all Peace Corps volunteers going out to lunch. David's wrist was struck. Roland was hit in the arm by shrapnel, and then again in the leg. Homer J. Kelly, a shopkeeper nearby, went to help the boys, but he was hit in the leg as well. They were all lucky enough to survive, but their friend Thomas Aquinas Ashton was not. He was hit in the chest and killed. Nancy Harvey and Ellen Evgandis, a student and a University of Texas employee, were able to seek shelter initially, but a guard told them they could go outside, so they did. Whitman then shot at them and hit Nancy in the hip, which ricocheted into Ellen's leg. Luckily, they also survived. Alec Hernandez was a high school student delivering newspapers on his bike when he was shot in the leg. It knocked him off his bike, but he survived. It's about 11.55 now, so he's been up there for 10 minutes. David Hubert Gunby, a student who was returning to the library to obtain a forgotten book when he was hit in the upper left arm and the bullet traveled into his abdomen and severed his small intestine. During surgery, doctors discovered that David only had one working kidney and his other had been severely damaged from the shooting. He lived in excruciating pain until 2001 when he discontinued dialysis. He died a week later. His death was officially declared a homicide, and he's officially a victim of Charles Whitman. Brenda Littlefield and Adrian Littlefield were two newlyweds, and they were leaving the tower when Brenda was shot in the hip. Adrian bent over to help her, and he was shot in the back. Luckily for them, they didn't die, and they were rescued by an armored car that was brought in to help victims. Claudia Rutt, Paul Bolton Sontag, and Carla Sue Wheeler were all friends, and they had run into each other outside when they heard the shots. They attempted to hide near some construction equipment nearby, but Whitman was able to shoot Paul in the mouth, killing him instantly. Claudia, seeing her boyfriend get shot, tried to run to him. Wheeler grabbed her to hold her back when Whitman's next shot went through Carla's hand and into Claudia's chest. Claudia died, but Carla survived. Paul's grandfather, also named Paul, was the KTBC TV news director, and unfortunately, he only heard of his grandson's death when the names of victims were being read on the news. Roy Dell Schmidt was an electrician who'd been hiding behind a car nearly 500 yards away. Think about that. That's five football fields. That's an extremely long distance. So after 30 minutes of hiding, he figured he was safe. When he stood up, he was almost instantly shot in the stomach, and he died. Billy Paul Speed was a police officer, was with another officer hiding behind some ballisters or some spindles on the South Mall when he was shot through a gap that was less than six inches wide. He died later that evening at the hospital. I think the two previous victims show just how skilled a shot Whitman was. Imagine being able to hit a target exactly where you want, or at least very close to where you want, at 500 yards. Unfortunately for everyone there, Whitman wasn't a bad shot. Harry Walchuk, a PhD student, was leaving the store down the street when he was shot in the chest and killed. Then Billy Snowden, who was a basketball coach, had been standing over 500 yards away, and he was standing at the entrance to a barber shop. He was struck in the arm, and he was the furthest victim that day. 
but he survived. Sandra Wilson, who was a student, was shot in the chest on Guadalupe Street, but she survived. Abdul Kashab, a foreign exchange student, along with his fiancée, Janet Paulos, a student, they were both shot on Guadalupe Street, but both of them survived as well. Then there was Lena Phillips, who was a student, and she was shot in the shoulder, but she survived. Two students, Oscar Roy Vela and Irma Garcia, were shot at the Hogg Auditorium, but they were dragged to safety by Jack Stevens and Jack Pennington. A carpenter by the name of Avelino Esparza was shot in the left arm, shattering his bone. But his brother and his uncle were able to pull him out of the danger zone, and he survived. Robert Hurd was a reporter on scene who got a little too close, and he was shot in the arm as well, but he survived. Then there was John Scott Allen another student, who was looking at the tower through a window at the student union. Whitman was able to shoot him through the window in the arm which severed an artery, but he survived. Morris Homan, a funeral director, was using his business ambulance to take victims to the hospital. He was shot in his right leg while trying to save someone else and he was unable to move. He stated later that he was laying there for 40 to 45 minutes listening to two construction workers nearby argue about who would expose themselves to save him. I can't imagine what that's got to feel like, to hear two other people talk about who's going to risk their life to save your life. That's a terrible 40 to 45 minutes. But he survived. F.L. Foster and Robert Freed were both wounded from crossfire between Whitman and the men on the ground, but both of them survived as well. Della and Marina Martinez were both wounded by shell fragments and shrapnel, but they survived. Then there's Dolores Ortega. She was a student at University of Texas. She had a cut on the back of her head, but it's unknown whether it was from flying glass or a bullet. Either way, she was lucky and she survived. The last victim was C.A. Stewart. They weren't shot, but they were injured in the commotion. At least that's what the notes say. I'm not sure exactly what that means. Maybe they sprained their ankle or something while they were running, but I would consider that a pretty light injury given the situation. Another survivor. While all this is going on, police are trying to figure out exactly how to handle this situation. From the ground, it looks like there's multiple shooters because bullets are coming from every angle. But, let's remember, we're in Texas. Nobody messes with Texas. So numerous citizens have grabbed firearms and they've headed down to the college and they're now shooting up at Whitman. This isn't quite enough to stop Whitman, but it's at least slowing him down. At this time, Houston McCoy, an officer on the scene, ran into a student who offered to help by providing his rifle and some ammunition. McCoy then takes this student to his home to pick those weapons up. Martinez, who's another officer, is at home cooking, getting ready for his shift, when he hears on the radio that there's an active shooter at the college. He calls in, and they instruct him to head down to the college so he can start directing traffic. Once he gets down to the college and realizes that there are already individuals directing traffic, he figures out a way to get into the tower. For him, the only way into the tower is to zigzag through the area of dead and wounded individuals. So he does that. Whitman attempts to shoot him, but misses. Alan Crum, a retired Air Force tail gunner, saw the scene unfolding and made his way to the tower. He met public safety agent Dub Cowan and Austin police officer Jerry Day. Cowan then gives Crum a rifle. So you now have four individuals at the tower, one who's making their way there, 
and then another cop with a student who's heading back towards the tower. McCoy eventually gets back to the tower and meets up with everyone. He finds his way through some underground tunnels. Citizens are continuing to fire at the tower, which helps keep Whitman down. At this time, police have also dispatched a sharpshooter in an airplane to try to take Whitman out. Unfortunately for police, this doesn't work, because Whitman's able to fire back. Remember, he's a good shot, and he can hit moving targets well. An airplane is really not going to be the best bet here. However, the police keep the airplane out in the air to distract Whitman. Whitman now has shots being fired at him from multiple areas on the ground as well as an airplane. This is too much for one person. This is probably why everyone is able to get to the tower. Once police and Crum got to the 27th floor, they found Mike Gabor, who was still alive. Officer Day removed him from the area to make sure that he was safe. And then Officer Day then returns to the 27th floor. Martinez and McCoy head out to the platform. At this point, they're still not entirely sure how many shooters there are. So when they round the corner, they only see one. Martinez fires at Whitman with his revolver, but he misses. Luckily, McCoy, at almost the same time, fires his shotgun. He hits Whitman twice. Martinez then takes that shotgun from McCoy and shoots Whitman point blank to make sure that this nightmare is over. After the death of Whitman, he was embalmed almost immediately. They removed his body and embalmed him that evening. There are no toxicology reports. However, at the request of Whitman himself, who asked for an autopsy in his suicide letter and with authorization from his father, an autopsy was performed. Whitman wanted to know if there was something physically wrong with him. During the autopsy, they found a brain tumor a brain tumor that was initially ruled to not have caused or influenced Whitman to take the actions that he took, but that was eventually reversed. So we have opposing views here. How significant a role did that brain tumor play? Did the size of the brain tumor, which in this case was pecan-sized, play a role? Would it be different had it grown larger? Would he have taken these actions had it not been there at all? These are questions we're going to wait to answer in part two with David. So that should do it for part one on Charles Joseph Whitman, the Texas shooter. In the meantime, as you wait for part two, you can get in touch with us on Twitter at guilty underscore podcast, on Facebook at guilty podcast, or you can shoot us an email. God, I got to stop doing these puns. You can send us an email, guiltypodcast at yahoo.com. You can also stop by our Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash guiltypodcast. I'm going to leave you with two promos for two podcasts that I love. The first is the Gone Cold podcast, and the second is Moms and Murder. Both are excellent choices when you're into true crime as much as I am. So this is Colin for David saying, don't mess with Texas. On February 17, 1974, Carla Walker was pulled from the passenger side of a car. After a struggle leaving her boyfriend unconscious, Carla was abducted by the strange attacker. Her body was found in a culvert near a lake three days later. Join the Gone Cold podcast as we explore Carla's case in depth as well as other unsolved and missing persons cases throughout the state of Texas.
Hey guys, this is Mandy and Melissa from Moms and Murder, a true crime podcast featuring two moms who think they're funny. Trust us guys, we are. Join us each week as we discuss both the infamous and unfamiliar stories in the world of true crime. You can check us out on our website at momsandmurder.com and also connect with us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We release new episodes on Tuesdays, so we hope you'll check us out.